0: Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Ladies, (laughs) thank you for joining us today. I'm Dr. Shanika Lawson. I am a research plant physiologist for the USDA Forest Service, and I will be the moderator for today's session. If you looked online, the moderator was a Teresa Hollingsworth. That is not me. She was unable to be here, so I'm filling in. So you'll see me look down at my notes so that I say everything she wanted me to say and that I say it well. Okay. So you can read her bio in the conference app if you would like to talk to her later or get more information from her because she is also interested in climate change and fire as we are. So like I said, our title is The Effects of Climate Change, Exciting Challenges for STEM Professionals. And we are going to share our journeys and tell you how we became interested in careers in STEM. So first off, I will be talking about myself. Uh, I am a leading researcher in the field of climate change and my impact on tree species. My focus lies in understanding how trees adapt to changing environmental conditions and developing strategies for conservation and protection of vulnerable species. I use advanced DNA sequencing. I use bioinformatics, molecular biology, basic physiology to investigate genetic markers and physiological markers in trees as they respond to climate change. My research aims to uncover crucial insights into tree populations' abilities to adapt and to inform conservation efforts, and I'll tell you a little more about that later. As a research plant physiologist, I collaborate with interdisciplinary teams and engage extensive outreach efforts. I effectively communicate my research findings to diverse audiences, as we have here, and I raise awareness about climate change and its impact on tree ecosystems. Beyond my research, I actively participate in community service initiatives that promote environmental stewardship among underrepresented youth. Through my volunteer work, I encourage young individuals to connect with nature. I foster their interest in STEAM fields, science, technology, engineering, agriculture, and math. And I work on those efforts related to climate change and environmental conservation, as I mentioned before. I received my bachelor's at Morgan State, which is an HBCU in Baltimore. I received my master's in biotechnology, biodefense, biological weapons from Johns Hopkins University, also in Baltimore. And I received my PhD in tree physiology and genetics from Purdue University not that long ago. I am also this year's Women of Color in STEM Community Service Award winner. So you will see me at the banquet on Saturday night. Next up, we are going to talk about our panelist, Jennifer Croft. She is on your far left. Jennifer has been with the Forest Service for 29 years in fire and aviation management. Her work history includes assessing high complexity landscapes evaluating workforce capacity, and assisting practitioners with continuing education. She is currently responsible for national-level hazardous fuels policy, protocols, and strategies for implementation. Jen has been working with tribal nations to expand workforce capabilities, incorporating indigenous knowledge into national forest management plans, and striving to restore the health of our ecosystems. Jen uses her FIRE qualifications to stay in touch with the field and participate in large FIRE events. She has a Bachelor's in Forestry from Washington State, a Master's in National Resource, um, excuse me, Natural Resource Management from Utah State, and a Graduate Certificate in Environmental Policy. Next up, we have panelist Dr. Naomi Plaza. She's on the far right. She's a materials research engineer at the U.S. Forest Service Forest Products Laboratory in Madison, Wisconsin. Her current research interests include the development and implementation of novel characterization, stay with me now, techniques using x-rays, light and neutrons to study nanoscale mechanisms needed to make durable forest products. Who knew, she's basically an astrophysicist. She's an honorary adjunct professor at the University of Puerto Rico, Maya Gaze, material science and engineering program, and an honorary research associate of the University of Wisconsin Chemical Engineering Department. In 2012, and we're gonna list some of her awards, she was the recipient of an NSF Graduate Research Fellowship, selected as a Graduate Engineering Research Scholar. In 2015, she was selected as a Robert E. Dougherty Composite Panel Association Scholar, awarded a Department of Energy Office of Science Graduate Research Fellowship, and she was able to continue her neutron scattering studies at Oak Ridge National Lab. If you've heard that name, that's because it's amazing, and that's a really, really big accomplishment. In 2018, she was the recipient of the Forest Product Society's Wood Award, which is highly sought after. Most recently, she's been recognized as the 2022 Most Promising Early career research scientist by Great Minds in STEM, and is the 2023 Women of Color STEM award winner, award winner for technology rising stars. She received her bachelor's from the University of Puerto Rico and a master's and PhD from the University of Wisconsin. Next up, we have panelist Dr. Tamara Hartskill-Scally. She is a research ecologist at the International Institute of Tropical Forestry. The USDA Forest Service in Rio Piedras, Puerto Rico. She was born in Santurce and raised in Rio Piedras. Her parents were born both public school art teachers and instilled in her a love for exploring landscapes. Wow, that's fascinating. Her research combines geographical and botanical perspectives with ecological approaches. She emphasizes tropical forests and freshwater ecosystems. Research projects by Dr. Hartskill Scally focus on riparian forests, streams, wetlands, and long-term monitoring of tropical forests. In fact, where she works, they have the longest recorded history of tropical forests in the world. Her time is divided between conducting research and being a mentor to students. She is cooperatively organizing a database for Caribbean foresters, a project that includes foresters, researchers, educators, and conservationists from the Caribbean region. Her collaborative works aim to disseminate knowledge about landscapes and have been recognized by the USDA Forest Service Chiefs Award in 2013 for Open Space Conservation, the USDA Forest Service Wilderness Legacy Award in 2014, and International Association of Art Critics Award in 2015 for Best Collective Exposition in the Puerto Rico Museum of Contemporary Art, which means the Forest Science, if you're interested in being an artist, We still have a place for you here. (laughs) She has, woo, wow. Her installation piece was titled Sound Circles and Immersion. In 2017, her collaborative research on wild and scenic rivers was recognized with the Excellence in Wilderness Stewardship Research Award and the USDA Forest Service Wilderness Champion Award. She earned a bachelor's degree in geography from the University of Puerto Rico and a master's from the University of Puerto Rico. A doctorate degree in ecology was had at the Utah State University. So these are our panelists, and we're gonna go through each one of us and answer the question that you see on the screen. When and how did you choose your career in STEM? Ladies, I can either go first or last. It's up to you, I'm sure they're tired of hearing me talk. So Jen.
1: You bet, bet. I would love to. (laughs) When did I choose my career? I think probably uh, like year number five of my life, right? There's a great picture between myself and my brother. I'm about three, he's about five. Um, and I'm literally, in this picture, you can tell I'm giving him the what for. I'm looking at a plant, a flower, and I'm pointing to something and I'm, I'm telling him, don't you know about this flower? When I got a little bit older uh, in, in my life, uh, I saw that I really wanted to be maybe a marine biologist, maybe something to do with the, you know, I thought that was a cool job, marine biologist, swimming around with fishes. Um, and then I just realized it's the woods that gives me that centering. It's just being in natural environments that brings me some level of balance and center. And so as I moved into my, my career for uh, college, if you will, I thought, well, I'll go play at Washington State University. I'll get a general degree here at first, but my first summer job was with the Forest Service because it was an easy hire, right? Just fill out the little application and off you go. and That'd be cool, work in the woods for the summer. And that's all it took. That's really all it took, was walking around in the woods, seeing the environment and realizing that I was about to get a paycheck as a GS3, right? And I was getting paid to walk around in the woods all day long and see things and think about things. And then they put a drip torch in my hand. Oh, now I'm paid pyromaniac. This is even better. I couldn't believe that I'm getting a paycheck for this. And then the first time I went on a fire, and I'm it was just me and my little buddy with me, we are out doing a little initial attack fire, probably the size of this table, and, but we had to stay out there with it for three days. And so I got to I got paid to sleep in the woods and hike and touch ground that probably someone hadn't been with in 100 years, and sleep under the stars and hear all the different parts and pieces. And I thought, man, this is the best office in the entire world. And if I can make my, my, my way here, then I don't care about marine biology so much anymore. I care about the woods and I care about all those parts and pieces and the more I got into it, the more addictive it became because I literally found myself connecting with not only the parts that I was having fun with, the camaraderie of fire crews and being in the woods environment, talking to the public and seeing things, but then I really started, in, you know, my mind started running with, how do we fix this? Or that's a problem. How does that come from? Where did this happen? And it was in that moment I realized that there's a whole lot more to even just fighting fire than the physical nature of fighting fire. There's a lot of science behind it. So shifted gears into forestry at my college and then it was game on after that. That's all it took literally was to find the things you love and then invest in them deeply. And so if you're here today because you love science and technology and engineering and mathematics, uh, Forest Service is a great place for you. Because I can tell you that is part of everything we do in every single program area we have is some level of science, technology, math, and and engineering. Because it happens to be part of every component we have. And in that, then you have this ability just to feed that fire within you, right? All that energy you have where you have desire, you want to see something change, you need to do something change, and or you just want to know. It happens in the Forest Service almost every day of my career and all 29 years of it. I have yet to get bored Every day is a different day. Every day is a different approach. I meet new people. I see new things We talk about stuff and in that reality. That's what made I think uh, all the more Important for me to be part of science and technology Even if my career is more on the the physical labor side of fire at least it was when I was younger Tamara
2: Um, so my experience was a little bit different, because even though I had an inclination from young to love being outdoors and ask a lot of questions, I didn't know any scientists. Nobody in my family was a scientist. I didn't even understand, really, what a scientist did. All I had was the traditional image of a lab coat, etc. And so um, I did my degree in geography, which is in the social sciences, because it connected to the outside, but it was kind of safe. What really turned me on to realize I could be a scientist was uh, a volunteer position I took at the Luquillo Experimental Forest in Puerto Rico, where I measured over 13,000 trees um, in various months. But being in the forest, I met scientists. I demystified what science was. I met graduate students and I thought, well, I could do that. And it, it, it really was being in the practice of seeing it was what took the mystique out of it and gave me that motivation that Jen was talking about to go back to the university and take all the natural science degree credits to be able to then enroll in a biology degree and then do research and then start to become ready to be part of that career. But if it wasn't for the opportunities, a simple volunteer position where you can get to engage in the field, that was really what what it took for me doing it and seeing it be done. Because a lot of the times we don't realize that we can't imagine all the options out there because we don't know them, so we we are self-limiting. So putting yourself out there, finding those volunteer positions, in my case, it it made a world of a difference.
3: Thank you. Naomi? Um, So I always thought that I found my calling early on, but now that I've heard Jen uh, discover (laughs) it at five, I don't think so anymore. (laughs) Um, I would say that when I was uh, very young, I always like, had a lot of questions and um, I would be eager to respond to things. So I thought that um, since I was doing good in school, I'd probably go into being a doctor or because I loved liberty getting so much, maybe I'd be a lawyer. So I kind of like gravitated toward all these different things. Uh, but then when I was in high school, um, I got to uh, start taking chemistry class and I really enjoyed it and my chemistry teacher, encouraged me to look for an opportunity to work at a lab Um, and it one opened up and I was too young to actually (laughs) work in that lab so she helped me find another one so I could go into the University of Puerto Rico as a volunteer um, to just like work on my science fair project Um, and that opened up a whole new like area for me just like answering questions which was pretty much what I just Wander around all the time, just having a curious mind, wondering, how does this work? Why does it work and how can you make it better? Um, And you know, that's pretty much what Science Fair was all about. Um, So I did my first Science Fair project uh, working with metals, nothing related to uh, to the forest, right? I used can taps, I did heat treatments, and it was all about metallurgy and material science. Um, And I fell in love with it. I was like, this is awesome, I'm going to do like, bachelor's in engineering, and I'm going to go into mechanical engineering to learn more about mechanical properties. So I did that. And after going through all these different internship opportunities to figure out what I liked and what I didn't, I was like, oh, I haven't tried anything with polymers or plastic. Maybe I should give that a shot. It wasn't as interesting as I thought. Um, (laughs) um, But I definitely like that I, I really enjoyed developing the toolbox and being able to transfer between different topics and getting to understand how the things that we use every day could uh, be developed better. How can we make more sustainable choices uh, as we move along so that our footprints are like less, right? Because like no matter what, they're there. So how can I make mine like you know less uh, impactful uh, on my environment? Uh, so as I was like uh, then seeking out these opportunities, um, I was. Able to get an internship at the University of Wisconsin Madison, where I could work at the Forest Products Lab, uh, and on a wood project. Now, uh, mind you, at the time, biology was not my thing. Uh, so when I, when my professor said, well would you like to work in this wood project? And I was like, oh, I'm more of a structural materials person. So, you know, I'd rather work with something not organic. I was like, okay, I have this shape memory project. And I was like, oh yeah, that sounds fun. It's the wood project. Uh (laughs) Aha, got you. Uh, And I I tried it for that summer and I fell in love with it. I mean, like there was so many challenges. You would have thought that for a material that's been, you know, for centuries around, we would know everything about it. But no, it was like all these things that we could now really understand so that we can really reach its full potential. So that really got me hooked. I went to Madison, uh, moved from Puerto Rico to Madison (laughs) uh, to go for grad school and ended up staying. Um, And after Pathways opportunity opened up, I was able then to join the lab uh, as a student working on my PhD and eventually convert into a scientist. Thank you. I just have one question before I get to my bio. Can you tell them a little bit about what a Pathways program yeah, is? Yes. so Pathways um, is this wonderful opportunity where you can uh, apply for a student internship position um, at a couple of different labs, couple of different stations, at pretty, pretty much anywhere in the Forest Service. Um, they'll have different opportunities where you can t- work on your degree and at the same time gain experience in the federal uh, system, figure out if this is a position you're interested in. Um, some of them will have options to uh, to rotate in different ones, like the presidential fellowships uh, one. Um, and there's also recent graduate opportunities. And then what's really neat about it is that once you finish your degree, sometimes you're presented with the option of converting into a full position. So while everybody else is figuring out what. They're going to do. You might actually have a job, uh, and you can start that, and like can really help you jumpstart your career. So, stay tuned. Go to into USA Jobs. Um, I hear that there's a lot of options open now for engineers. So that's a great way to you know really get exposed to a, a new field. Thank you. So I
0: have always been interested in STEM even before I knew what STEM was. As a little girl, I would spend weeks watching wasps build their nests, watching birds build their nests. Now I'm going to tell you, I challenge you to try and build a bird nest using two fingers because I watched and they would just use their beak to weave the grasses and stuff together. After a few days, I went to three fingers and four fingers, then both hands, and I still couldn't do it. Engineering was just not my thing, so hats off to Naomi (laughs) because I couldn't do it. Um, after that, I started getting more interested in how the animals and plants interacted together because, again, I was struggling to build this nest and I just couldn't do it. So, the pivotal moment was when I looked at the birds next to each other and I saw how different the male was from the female. I wanted to know what genetics were involved, what happened, and then. My sister and I apparently look so much alike that people call us twins, even though she's 22 months older than me and we don't get along. So when people are like, oh, Chantel, that's not me. That is definitely not me. Oh, you look so much alike. Oh, I couldn't. I wanted to know what genetics were involved in making us look so much alike because she's two years older than me. So there's, in my mind, no reason why we should be identical. So. I started getting interested in influences on genetics, chemical mutagens, X-rays, gamma rays, all of the stuff that I saw when I watched Spider-Man as he changed from a man to a spider. Um, I wanted to know how trees would inherit or develop mutations, if they even did. Because again, I'm outside, I'm just looking around. I saw oak trees and pine trees. Again, young me thought they were the same tree and they just looked different. It is not the case, in case you didn't know. I wanted to know how this happened, whether there were chemicals involved, whether that was something that I could understand. So later on in life, I decided to get into biology. I got into genetics. I get into whatever class they were offering in high school that I could take it, that was college prep. They would not allow me to take, and I don't know if your schools are different. I could not take shop class. I could not take auto mechanics or masonry because they said, oh, you're going to college. You don't need those skills. Don't worry, I picked all those skills up later. So if you need me to lay down some concrete for you, I'm your girl. So so essentially, I was interested in everything and wanted to know how to do everything. So like Naomi said, there are pathways, options. There's options to do anything and everything. Um, We've got a pyromaniac on the end. I'm not sure if you'd like to go into that right this second, but talk to Jen. She'll get you hooked up. <laughs> so essentially, everyone here on the panel has been interested since they were little in doing something, whether it's creative, whether it's doing art installations like tomorrow, whether it's going out in the woods and sleeping in a tent, or whether it's doing some engineering with polymers. There's something for everyone. And it is a shameless plug for you to go to usajobs.gov. No shame in my game whatsoever. There's also a carnival booth at 1301 downstairs. But enough about me. So our next question for all of the ladies on the panel is what skills or knowledge
1: have helped you the most in your career? Let's see. Um, I think that a lot of us early on in our careers, whether it's in school or as youth, and then as we become career professionals, we're waiting for someone to tell us the answers. How do I get there from here? Or what do I take next? What's the best path, if you will? And I discovered early on, uh, being one of only two females in a forestry degree program, that this is a very male-dominated adventure going into the physical sciences. Um, And I realized that if I was waiting for someone else to give me a hand up, it wasn't going to happen. So I became my own captain of my future. I became my own advocate. And by doing that, not waiting around for someone to give me the answers, Um, I was able to find and navigate a career path that was much more, I think, rich and diverse in its content, skills, and ability than if I had been waiting in line like all the rest of the folks in FIRE. We have a tendency, we have this chain of command in FIRE, and we have a tendency to fear, if you will, stepping out of that chain of command. And I just found a way, uh, I think probably a little bit of all of us have have that little tune of, how do we work this problem? We're problem solvers, right? That's why we like science. We're problem solvers. So how do I solve this problem? Fine. I'm going to make friends with all the educated, intelligent females that are within the Forest Service because they got there somehow. And I'm going to make friends with them and I'm going to find out how did they get there from here. And I'm going to take little tidbits from here and tidbits from there. And then I'm going to build my own program and I'm going to come back and talk to some of those older females who have already succeeded in their careers and ask them, is this what it looks like? Is this a good path? or where would you course correct me if you needed to? And I had at least two or three really strong female mentors within my agency who were willing to not only, I guess, not advocate for me, but just encourage it. And I got answers like, well, we don't have the money for that, but if you can find a way, I will send you. So conferences, training. Um, ad- adventures and details to different locations across the nation, right? I would make contacts and make network friends with all kinds of folks and the moment you find yourself to be more approachable Magic starts just dropping in your lap for you if you will in terms of skills ability and experience And so that's my biggest advocacy now I encourage everyone in this room if you are waiting for someone to give you the answers It's not gonna happen and it's a hard truth. Right? But if you seek the answers out and you network with all the strong, competent females in this room right now, I can guarantee you, you're going to go places. Because collectively, when we add, it's a force multiplier when we add our energies together. And then magically, even today, I've had conversations with my partner here. We're already talking about making plans for me go to El Yunque and Puerto Rico and Dominican because we're seeing fire problems emerge in the Caribbean that have not existed before. So it's these kinds of partnerships and networks that career, it, that's really, it's not, it's not, did you get an A in class? Did you do all the, you know, check boxes and T's? It's more about relationships, networks, and being your own captain of your future. Do not let anyone tell you, you will not be the rising star you are.
2: Oh, wow. Tamara, well, well said. I need to take a, <laughs> take a deep breath. Um, so, you know, we, we get into these careers because we, we are inquisitive, we're curious, but at the same time, we have to be self-taught in a way. We take classes, but then we need to continue relearning things. One of the challenges as as a scientist, which is uh, I feel super privileged to have the job I have, but at the same time, I have to keep up with technology. So um, one of the things that we're finding is that the initial skill sets that got me here now need to be incremented, for example, The skill sets that I had of observation, of curiosity, that led me to really be aware of landscapes. A lot of the work I do, I need to think beyond the scale that I'm observing. Did this landscape before used to be a home? Is this a secondary forest? Was there farming here? Have there been fires in the landscape? Is the forest adjacent to urban areas? Is it adjacent to agricultural sites? So those powers of observation that I used before to, you know, do all my work and check that, now need to be scaled up. And then beyond that, we're at a point with the development of science that, for example, the Forest Service is the steward of multiple decades of data that have immeasurable value to understand how forests have responded and transitioned to previous disturbances and help us understand how forests are gonna react in the future to further combinations of the synergy of the drought with the hurricane. And so saying that, data management skills have become something in the forefront of science that when I was beginning wasn't something that was so much in, in the plate of the things you had to do. So something as simple as having basic coding skills, even if you're a plant taxonomist, will really get you there because We're right now in a moment that science is building upon itself and we need to be able to take advantage of the work that has been done before us. But at the same time, I wanna leave all the work that I've done in a readable format, some nerd talk here, in a readable (laughs) format so that whatever technologies in the future to access the data and the processes and how I manipulated the data and how I did the analysis can be read and understood by others. Because now I'm realizing that I want to leave things ready for others to use them. Mm-hmm. And this is happening as we speak. And mm-hmm. so to me, that ability to continue learning and, re- and observing what's happening around and shifting your focus, it's it's a skill set that has transformed but that has remained an important one.
3: Naomi? Yeah, um, I, I'm loving those ideas. Um, I, if I would say, um, what could I add to that? Um, I would mention that we often think of the toolbox that is more the traditional one, right? For science uh, and engineering, you know, we think of math and all those like different tools that we um, need to develop. Uh, and yes, those are important, but so are the emotional like intelligence skills and like communication is so, so important. I mean, a lot of what I do on a daily basis, has a lot to do with like reading, writing and listening. And I would say that that's probably the most important thing. Um, it's knowing how to listen and knowing how to capture information from other people and ideas and how I can apply them into my own world, right? So that my path is, can be improved. Um, and I would say that that's probably the most valuable skill. The best advice I ever got was <laughs> from my chemistry teacher back when I was like 15. She said, oh, you're so quick and eager to learn and jump the gun. I was like, just take a second listen, even if this sounds like something you know, you might just hear something that you don't, you know, and, like, learn something. And and I think that there's just so many opportunities to learn from each other, even when you don't necessarily think that uh, we have something in the table. So I, I make a constant effort to try to, like, when I go to a technical conference, go to a session that I'm not really familiar with, or go to a talk that I'm like, oh, you know, this might be useful for us. I don't think that... Anybody in my area actually knows about this. So I'm gonna go dive in and like, learn about some really deep physics like stuff. And sometimes I walk out saying like, oh, this is really useful. And sometimes like, well, this was really interesting. I don't think it will be useful, but I learned something today. Uh, right, um, and, and often I, I would talk to uh, our administrative assistants and be like, "Hey, you know, I need the general audience perspective. Um, can you take a look at this? You mind if I give you like a minute pitch of what I'm doing and why it's important? And you can let me know like if this is where's the engineering jargon that I did I actually remove it because <laughs> I'm, I'm like not noticing those things anymore, right?" Um, so I think that there's so much value in those skills that perhaps are not the traditional ones that uh, we think about. So, Thank you. I think we've learned a little about me so far. I am insatiably
0: curious about everything. If you were here when you saw my bio slide, you saw that I double majored in biology and chemists. I minored in English, Spanish, and Latin because I thought Latin was insanely useful. Vocabulary development in the English language originated in Latin, so if you don't know what a word means and someone's talking, you're like, "Mm mm-hmm. If you know what the Latin roots are, you know what they're saying, and you can you know, pretend like you knew all along what the word was. So when I started, I didn't start quite as young as the rest of the panelists knowing where I wanted to go. I started in human genetics. I thought that was the where-all and end-all because, again, like I said before, I wanted to know why my sister looked so much like me. So after four years of human genetics, then I tried a year of neuroscience, and then I realized that chemical mutagens can induce changes in human beings, as well as plants, as well as animals. So I started getting an interest in mutagens, which led me back to genetics, which led me to tree genetics, which led me to understanding why certain trees could tolerate Certain conditions in the outdoors. Whether you see trees that are out there in the snow, how do they survive? I mean, I know it's cold, they don't get blankets. What about the trees that are in the tropics? Can you move those trees to the cold weather? What will happen? Will they survive? So my interest more along the lines of, was that the micro scale? I mean, I, I couldn't see the forest for the trees for the longest time. And now I'm sort of moving into an area where the entire forest is something that's of interest to me, because all of those trees have something to contribute to the whole. So that's, that was the aha moment for me. Those were the skills that I needed, the curiosity to be willing to learn about anything and everything. Like Naomi said, she might not have been interested in a talk that she went to, but she learned something. Who knows when that learning will help you in the future. So now that we've talked all about ourselves and our backgrounds, we're going to get into the meat of what you came here to hear. We're going to begin answering a few targeted questions regarding climate change and its relevance or relationship to wildfires, and we were going to start with Jen. So Jen will have two questions. How have climate changes impacted fire management on public lands? And how does the U.S. Forest Service address smoke impacts, public safety, and fire risk Reduction, yes.
1: Okay, Um, so you see in this slide too, this is like one of my favorite slides when you talk about climate change and fire, if you will, because it kind of puts all the parts and pieces. A lot of folks think fire is just its own entity. Um, Fire is probably the one entity within natural resource management that has its tentacles in everything, every single arena that we have out there. Fire is involved in some way, shape, or form. Because land management focuses around change agents and fire is probably one of the dominant change agents in that regard. Climate change, as we see increase in temperature and a decrease in humidity, shifts in weather patterns, um, what we're starting to see now from a land management perspective in relationship to fire itself is that everything's out of skew, if you will. Right, so our pace and scale of treating the landscape is not consistent. Uh, it's not with the same consistency that the, the climate change re- relevance is. We're seeing bigger fires than we've ever seen before. We have somewhere in upwards of 70 additional days of large fire growth every season. We went from probably about five months of annual large fire growth to now we're at seven months. And so we're seeing that shift into different seasons of the year and it's and it, that in itself is a, is a strange object, if you will. So as a change agent, From climate change's perspective, um, the increase in temperatures has dramatically influenced across the landscape, whether it's the tree species, um, the fire regimes themselves, how frequent fires return, how large those fires can spread. The game has completely changed in relevance to where we used to be. We typically like to think of land management principles as we want to go back to that, what those conditions were historically. What does that place look like historically? And we have tried for so long to fit things into that little narrow category of how do we manage this ecosystem and get it back to where it was. We have to, as land managers, let that go. Let it go, because it's not coming back, right? Climate change has shifted our environment to an extent where we can no longer reach historical ranges of variability. We have to start planning now for where we are going, where we are headed. We are seeing species shifts in in climates where we used to have almost zero fire on a landscape. to Now we're starting to see an uptick and an increase in fire in in different environments that traditionally shouldn't support fire. There are no fire-dominated species. There aren't fire-dominated ecosystems in that country, and now all of a sudden we're seeing that be present. This is not just a United States issue. It's a global issue. We're starting to fight fire in places we have never seen it. So, when we look at that from a perspective here at the Forest Service on the national scale, we're starting to see demands higher for our workforce capacity. We're starting to see a demand or a shift, a huge shift, if you will, in technology and how we assess fire. You know, I can remember early in my career, we'd throw a map down on the top of a hood of a pickup truck with crayons and we'd draw pictures and, oh, over here, Bob, go over there and we're going to do this over here and then we'll all be done. And that was for a really big fire at 10,000 acres. Well, big fire now, we're talking hundreds of thousands of acres. That's what a big fire looks like now. And in my last, shoot, last five years, we're seeing mega fires where we have millions of acres on fire. And it's not just one large fire we're having to direct with. We have no options. We're having to see larger, larger events. So just simply responding to that capacity change, climate change is changing the entire game of how we manage fire on a landscape and the tentacles of where fire reaches is in all the other parts and pieces, whether it's fuels mitigation, ecosystem management, wildlife movement, aquatics management, um, all of our technical and te- all of our technology, all the stuff I use as a fire strategist. Um, that's all coming from somewhere, and it's all in the science, technology, engineering, and, and math crew. And so, really, how is it changing? How is climate changing, changing land management? It's opening the game to a level that is way beyond anything I think any of us could have envisioned in the early 1900s um, when we had Gifford Pinchot giving us the what for and the 10 a.m. policy. That we gotta put all fires out by 10 a.m. It's a completely different strategy now. It's a completely different game. Science and technology are a critical component of how we manage wildfire on a landscape scale. Okay, so, outcome, outcome of all those extra fires in all those larger landscapes. Here's the other brutal hard truth. Humans, right, we don't like to stay in the same place. And we like our woodlands, we like our natural environments. And so we've sprawled dramatically into all these wildland urban interface environments. And that's basically where your urban areas are meeting your wild environments. And because of that, we're starting to see communities who are not only at risk from being overwhelmed and overcome by wildfire events themselves, but the bigger picture is the smoke outcomes of that. These larger fires going from what we used to have as 10,000 acres to now hundreds of thousands of acres, and not just one megafire at a time, but oftentimes 10 to 15 megafires in a given geographic. We're seeing smoke on epic levels that then travels not just small distances, but very far. And those of you out here in the East Coast, you got a good dose of that this year from Canada. Thank you, Canada. Wave to the guys across the street, right? But it's, it's just this reality that, that smoke and fire do not know boundaries. And unfortunately, the impacts of smoke, we have not been acknowledging of them until the last decade or so. And it turns out that the smoke carries particulate matter. It's a particulate matter of 2.5 micrograms, meters cubed. It goes way past your initial respiratory system, down into your alveoli, scratches them up really, really bad and opens them up basically for all kinds of germs and any other microbial items that are floating around in this universe. So in the last five to 10 years, we've really dramatically changed our stance on smoke. It used to be, I'll suck it up. That's part of the game, right? With fire comes smoke, deal with it. Well, now we're recognizing with air quality monitors, we have the capacity to warn and forecast and look at different communities and say, hey, there's a different community over here full of, whether it's elderly or youth or underserved nations, right? We have the capacity now to recognize where is that smoke gonna go? What's the impact level going to be? And how can we help that community prevent and or provide and be prepared for those smoke events, whether it's smoke safe rooms, whether it's getting grants to do treatments around so we can reduce the amount of available fuels for combustion, and or something as simple as just getting HEPA filters and box fans. We helped uh, the folks in California last year get HEPA HEPA filters and box fans at Home Depot. It's a simple coupon with the Environmental Protection Agency. And you wouldn't think that's a big deal, but it was. We ran out of all the coupons and then some, because it turns out people enjoy having oxygen, And and they really enjoy being able to still think and wake up in the morning and not cough and not huff and not have that interruption of their day. Smoke impacts on average 10 times more people than fire does. And in the big picture of how that then pans out, we have somewhere between 130,000 premature deaths annually on a global level. Here in the United States, we see about 6,000 people. And so people who are perfectly healthy in hazardous smoke conditions, see their hearts getting worked out and their hearts say, i out, peace, and they're gone. Not because they weren't healthy, not because they were struggling, but because they had a pre-existing genetic condition that then was then provoked by that hazardous smoke in itself. So it's not just our elderly, it's not just our kids or our pre-existing conditions with diabetes and, and asthmatic issues. It's the perfectly healthy folks in this room that we're starting to recognize we have to be prepared for, we have to incorporate their, com- their concerns and then prepare their communities for the inevitable because fire's not gonna go away. That's the one thing that's not gonna change. Fire is only going to continue to be a problem, if not a bigger problem, which is why we're trying to attack it now with the wildfire crisis strategy. It's gonna take all hands in this room to make this work. The perspectives of the map on the hood of a car aren't gonna cut it anymore. Now we're having to deal with all the various avenues that fire has its webs in.
0: Thank you, Jen. I mean, that was humbling to hear. Next up, we have Naomi who's gonna answer two questions about how does forest products research help support sustainable forest management, particularly when thinking about climate change and smoke? We'll start with that one.
3: Um, Yeah, so I think the forest products research connection and perhaps the conservation practices are not something that you may seem like as a direct connection. Um, But I think that our research really can help incentivize how we use uh, those resources more. Sustainably, more mindfully, um, so that we can find uses for the stuff that usually wouldn't have like a uh, high value. So it's easy to think about those forest products that are more traditional, right? Like the timber, the high value wood that we can use in like uh, buildings, furniture, or other traditional products like uh, paper cups or uh, things like that. But um, we can also find new uses for some of the low value biomass that would otherwise just burn in a, a fire, so that we can like help. Uh, those like forest thinning practices or things like that, um, so that there's new local bioeconomies that can like use those things, and you, we can also help those rural communities like surrounding those areas thrive. Um, and uh, another thing that we could think about is that it is not just about finding new uses, but it's also about like making those things that we're using last longer. How do we can reuse them? How do we design them so that they're lasting longer in harsher conditions when there's a lot of water in the environment, if you're in the tropics, or when there's a drought? Um, and how do you design something so that it's withstand both both conditions, You know, like freezing, thaw, and uh, desert conditions, so that like we can use those in uh, different settings? Also, how do we design those things so that they can have a second life? So not just thinking about where it goes, where it ends, but where could it, could it go next? Um, And so it really comes with like a new mind shift about how like we can really be inspired uh, by all this change uh, that is being triggered around us and how it's changing then those like sources um, and how we can use that change so that we can better utilize them moving forward.
0: Thank you. And the second question, what is the role of working forests in a thriving bioeconomy and a brighter future
3: in light of climate change? Yeah, so I think um, I touched a little bit about it, but I'm, I'm really hopeful, uh, actually. I'm, I'm a very optimist person, but I am really hopeful. I think that there's just so much opportunities for really having uh, more localized economies where we can like think of uh, developing new things, coming up with uh, using local sources for 3D printing things in, in a closer environment so that we're not having to potentially look at uh, much farther resources that are not available as quickly, so we can have like quick prototypes or, and things like that. Um, and if we can like really develop those options so that they're more accessible to different things, that, so that they're affordable as well. Because often we have thought that uh, green, um, it's better, but it's also more pricey. That really doesn't need to be the chain, like the, the case, right? I mean, we can make those things available and accessible for everyone, so that those impacts are long-lasting. Um, and we can really work on having a more sustainable future like as we move forward for generations to come. Thank you.
0: We will be moving on to Tamara. How do permanent sample plots contribute to understanding climate change in tropical forests?
2: Um, So tropical forests, different from forests in temperate regions don't have that annual growth cycle of the winter, spring, summer, fall. Tropics are a-seasonal. You may say they have a rainy season, a less rainy season. <laughs> but now we're having dry seasons. And so that has always been a challenge. And so the very simple technology of marking trees, marking where they are in the forest, and going back and remeasuring them over decades, we have some plots that were started in 1943, and they are the oldest continuously measured tropical forest plots in the world. Some were started in West Africa two years earlier, but they haven't been continuously measured. And also some were started in um, Guyana, but they haven't been continuously measured. So looking at climate change through the lens of these very long-lived, organisms, which are trees, is a really humbling experience. And also, there's a lot of responsibility in managing that information. And so one of the things that we can do is, in lieu of having the range of disturbances, hurricanes and droughts, in one site, we can reach to other partner Forest Service agencies across countries, across regions, and say, hey, do you have these trees in these plots? What have they experienced? How much did they grow? And so permanent forest plots are low-tech, so to speak, that can really be used to find some high-tech answers to understand responses of forests to past climate conditions, but also help us understand tree species distribution range potentials for assessing conservation risk and conservation status. And so um, the Forest Service mission that I work under really has the challenge of looking at tropical things that apply to tropical America, but also have implications for the tropics worldwide. Mm -hmm. And permanent forest plots can also yield information about climate. We have collections of rainfall data to understand not only the quantity, but the quality of the rainfall. Mm -hmm. And in understanding that chemistry, we have seen how through the years, the Saharan dust season, which used to be only May to June, now it's April to September. Mm -hmm. And so how those things that are happening worldwide have implications about how we manage our forest at home. So again, the knowledge skill set that we have to build to really be aware and observe and realize how being a custodian of data is, is such an important thing because it goes beyond the initial design of what it was used for, and especially if we documented well. So understanding climate change through the lens of historically old plots distributed in different places is also helping us understand the needs and capacity building of our partners that manage forests elsewhere. So that unit of going and doing a training on forest measurements, on inventory, on data management is really something that is helping us Build a network of others that we can support and be supported by with the knowledge gained from those sites.
0: Thank you. And your second question is How does your research program contribute to our understanding of tropical forests in light of climate change?
2: Um, so, we've talked a lot about fire. And so, one of the things in our forests is that they have not experienced much fire, and we don't have many fire adapted species. The forest that I mainly work in is a wet forest, and a rainforest, and a cloud forest. There's four or five forest types along the Luki Experimental Forest, and what we do have is that the forests are the producers of water. Water is a resource for an island; it's a limiting resource. Fresh water that comes from the mountain is something that has high cultural value, high practical human sustenance value, but also has, um, you know, very important. Uh, spiritual values for people as well. And in my working with the forest, I didn't see the streams, right? And we have thousands of that image on the left. There's a continuous canopy, but there's a very high density of streams under the canopy. And one of the things that we have is to understand that our forests are are, um, functioning well under ecosystem disturbances such as hurricanes, such as drought, is understanding how the organisms in the streams are telling us what's happening in the forest. Because we're an island, our forest uh, aquatic uh, ecosystems in the streams have a life cycle that needs to go out into the ocean and then back the mountain. They migrate. And so, you know, everybody knows the charismatic salmon, but we have the charismatic shrimp and we also have uh, you know, unique species that depend on eating certain kinds of leaves of certain kinds of species. And so when you have consecutive droughts, which was unprecedented for these tropical regions and for a rainforest to be in a drought, it really shook the system. And so for a while, we had very few leaves in the canopy, and they fell yellow, they fell brown, when usually, You don't have that happen in a tropical forest. In a tropical forest, there's no synchronous uh, fall of the leaves. We always have green leaves, and so this was a shock to the system to see all the drought produce a leaf fall of leaves that were yellow and brown, which did not have the nutrients or the food. And so that triggered a cascading effect on the aquatic ecosystem, which affected the water quality. And this is really something that, shook many scientists, and now we're working special projects understanding drought, because we have to look at the system as a whole. And so in that case, the research program that started with trees has ended up to look at the water, because the organisms in the water tell us about what's happening with the system. And further from that, we also understand that the forest is placed in a greater landscape that has urban areas, that has agricultural areas. And so when our rivers pass through urban areas without forest cover, without a riparian zone, the forests that grow adjacent to streams, what does that do to the forest upstream? The water connects the forest through the landscape. And so when something happens in part of a river, and we have a lack of organisms, so we have a change of water quality, that can be seen up the mountain in the forest because then the organisms don't get to migrate. If those organisms don't reach the top of the mountain, then they affect the food web of the organisms in the mountain, and so we're realizing that we cannot see things compartmentalized anymore. We have to step back and look at the landscape. And so in that sense, um, the research program to really address climate change has to go beyond the borders of the forest as we know it and look at the landscape it inhabits and integrate that urban component of the landscape that is adjacent
0: to our protected areas. Thank you, Tamara. And the last two questions are mine. How do I expect efforts to begin assisted migration will be impacted with the increasing prevalence of wildfires? Show of hands, who knows what I'm talking about when I say assisted migration? Thank you, Dr. Moore. Anyone else? Yes. Thank you, Tina. So there's a schematic at the bottom that talks about assisted population migration, APM, assisted range expansion, A-R-E, and assisted species migration. So when you hear someone say assisted migration, they could theoretically be talking about either of those, but I'll focus on assisted population migration. So essentially that means, and I'm going to shorten my remarks because everyone else has done such a wonderful job. That means you have a population of tree species that are happy living in Detroit. They love Detroit, they're very happy to be here, but the climate is changing. You're suddenly getting temperatures that are so far outside the extreme that, like Tamara was saying, the leaves are turning brown, they're dropping earlier, it's affecting the food web. So at the risk of losing those species, you want to round them all up and move them somewhere else. So when you do population migration, you look at the population as a whole and you take everybody, and they move to a different location. So what could be the problem behind moving a population to a different location? Rain could be a problem. Temperature could be a problem. There could be things that you have not considered that happen in that area that those trees are not ready for. If you suddenly move from Detroit to Florida and it's 100 degrees all day every day and you've got these really cute winter coats, who's gonna be a hot, sweaty mess? So these trees don't have the forethought. They can't take their jackets off, so we have to do the thinking for them. We have to make sure that where they're going is acceptable for them. The increase in climate, of course, has made droughts worse, thunderstorms, lightning storms, and with all of that together, you get wildfires. Drought plus wildfire echoes California and hundreds of thousands of acres burning. So the problem with that is who lives in the forest? Other than Bigfoot, we have got your plants that can't move. You've got your animals. People are like, oh my God, I saw a bear. Well, you just burned down his house. Where's he gonna go? So if your pool looks inviting, he's going to avail himself of the opportunity. So when we're looking at efforts to begin assisted migration, there are a lot of concerns, but there are two major ones. Will that tree endure that environment? Will that environment endure that tree? And what comes along with the tree? If you're moving tree species, the birds that like to live in those trees are moving with it. The insects that like to eat those trees, they're moving with it. The wildlife that likes to live in that forest, it's moving with it. So if you move that forest to, let's just say, outside of the latest, newest housing development, that forest is gonna look beautiful. But those folks are going to have to understand that the insects, the wildlife, everything comes along with it. And then if we have wildfire, that forest no longer protects them, so they're definitely moving into that neighborhood. So that neighborhood is no longer suitable for an assisted migration location. So you've got to come up with something else. In addition to that, you've got to make sure that there are no ecological disasters, because invasives can be a problem. If something is endemic to one area on this side of the country, moving it over here is not gonna make anyone happy. get um, woolly hemlock adelgid is a problem in the Smoky Mountains. Mountain pine beetle on the west coast is a problem because it's moving farther east and it is assisted by the wildfires burning everything down. So it's making an effort to move even faster to stay ahead of them. So that is, some of the challenges that will um, slow efforts to begin assisted migration. Because we do as much as we can to try and find stable environments, as much as we can to account for the ecological concerns, the, and I hate to say it, the public opinion as to what they would prefer in their area, whether or not it's best for the trees. If the public doesn't want it, the location is no longer viable, even if it's the only one in an area. So those are two of the major concerns, and we understand that there are ethical concerns. This was never going to be an easy task, but, and I have a quote that I totally stole from a movie, you work as fast as you can, as hard as you can, for as long as you can. And I've added, and history takes the rest. There are so many species, thanks to wildfires, they're gone, they're not coming back. Like Jen mentioned earlier, You you can't go back to the way it was. You have to think ahead. Mm -hmm. Um, The next question, what do you expect the response to increasing temperatures, flooding, fires, and other natural disasters will have on forest diversity? So and I've wrote each one of those down. Temperature. So heat-adapted species, they like it where it's hot. Those who are adapted to cooler environments don't like it so much. The wildfire is, who'd say it was cool? It's hot. So those species that can handle the heat, they're going to endure. Those that don't do so well in an area that has never seen a wildfire before, they're going to die out. And they're either going to be slower to come back, or they're going to be going extinct in that area. (laughs) Invasive species is something we didn't mention. Like I said before, the mountain pine beetle is moving from the west coast to the east because it's being pushed by the wildfires. So that's one of the responses to the increasing temperatures um, in forest diversity, when you get invasives that outcompete your native animals, who's seen an actual ladybug in their lifetime? Like the ones that you see that are like a light orange with like 50,000 dots, that's not the one you see on kids' clothing with like the three dark black dots. That species is almost extinct. So what you see now are the invasive ladybugs that have outcompeted our native ladybug. So what you see now, that's already a change that happened before. I'm just going to say most people in the room were born, not pointing any fingers at anyone else who's (laughs) seen them. So on top of that, flooding. What would happen if you were in, say, one of the national parks and there was a flash flood, and your family's on one side, and you're on the other, and there's this river of water? I don't think anybody's going to try and swim across the river. The water is getting broader and broader. So what happens with repeated flooding, those populations on one side of the water they have to resort to inbreeding because they can't interact with the rest of their population. So you have two separate populations that lead to inbreeding, which decreases diversity because they need to interact. There are species that need to see everyone else. That's gonna be a serious decline of your diversity in that area. Um, And I hate to be so negative, but fires, there are like, Everyone has said before, there are some fire adapted species. There is a specific species of pine tree that I'd like to mention. It's called jack pine. It's usually Midwest and farther west. It requires fire in its life cycle. It has extremely thick bark, so it can endure for the most part. It can be killed. But the cones from the jack pine, without wildfire, they do not open to release seeds, so if you have wildfire, That tree can reproduce. If you don't, that tree will die out and something else will take over, something that is most likely an invasive which brings all of the issues that invasive bring with them, which means destruction of other forest species. Um, Next we have natural disasters, ice storms, thunderstorms, tornadoes in the middle of a forest, like wreaking havoc, just mowing down all of the plants. Like who's walked through a forest and you see like those little delicate plants The bottom, they're really cute. They kind of look like ferns and whatnot. Those plants, obviously, they're very delicate. So when you have all of these ice storms, they're the first ones to die. If you've ever left your tomato plants out and you've had a sudden freeze and you see how they curl up and die, I mean, they're tomatoes. It It would take an act of God to kill them, but they'll come back. The species in the forest, they will not. So if there are no seeds under the ground, you're gonna lose that species. So that's a fire effect natural disasters, and the forest diversity, Anytime that you have a, an act of God, an act of nature, one of these natural disasters, your species diversity is going to be severely affected. It's either temperature, flooding, hurricanes. Katrina, anyone? I mean, it. there are so many effects of natural disasters and, and other events, let's just say that. Um, some are natural disasters, some are campers, who, Realize that if you just you know brush something over the fire, I don't see it anymore, it's gone. I'm not sure, Jen, how many fires are started by accidental campers who enjoy the outdoors and then burn it to the ground, but there are things that we can do to look out for species diversity, to look out for the things that are happening in our forests. It starts with public opinion, then it starts with conservation efforts, it starts with volunteering, and like we've mentioned, USAjobs.gov, it starts with getting paid to do it, I mean, there's nothing like being out in the woods. Trust me, I'm a lab rat. I spend most of my time, 16 hours a day, because I want to, not because they force me to, in a research lab. But when I go out, like the fresh air, collecting samples, it's like a whole other world. And like Jen said, it can be the best job in the world. I mean, you get paid to be out there. <laughs> so I didn't talk a lot about range expansion. So when we talked about range expansion, it's sort of like, if the tree will survive there and you've built like a huge housing development, and you've cut all the trees down, if there's an area to put those trees, you can move it into that area of its range. It will endure there. Assisted species migration is you've only got a few of those delicate species, but they'll survive across the water in Canada. You can take them from Kentucky or wherever they are and if Canada has the right environment, you take that species, you move it so it gets a fresh start somewhere else. So everything that we've talked about today is all linked and it starts with you. Thank you for joining us for this dialogue. If we have any questions, there's a mic. Good morning,
4: thank you for sharing your stories with us. They're all um, different in their own ways, but um, the power of support Mm -hmm. and someone seeing that light in you, um, I can think of some times in my life where I've gotten that kind of support. I currently work in the aerospace industry And we talk about uh, sustainability and trying to work with the, uh, you know, the the changing climates and and perhaps lessen our impact on that. Mm -hmm. Um, As, as folks that are in the, in the world and seeing some of those impacts, are there any? um, Is there anything you'd like to to our industry to understand? um, From, from your perspective, where we can make a difference um, or to consider as we make our choices for the future?
1: I can tell you from the wildfire side, absolutely. Um, we have a, a huge dependence and or reliance on aerial recraft or aircraft in order to support our organization. We still need the people on the ground to back it up, right? But when it comes to what we've been doing with our retardant aircraft and our, uh, all the other suppression aircraft we have, um, we're trying to convert, if you will, sometimes we talk about it as a, as a square peg trying to fit in, in a round hole, right? Aircraft were not designed to do what we're asking them to do. Um, And so we have issues related to that from a safety standpoint. But we also have this really traditional mindset. We keep trying to fit or use what we have existing and failing to recognize there's this huge untapped universe in front of us. What else can we do from an aerospace environment and and how can we design technology to be more supportive and reduce risk at the same time? So drones in particular, that's where I would focus my attention to you. Um, We are starting to use drones on wildfire events and for even just our natural resource management. It's an amazing reconnaissance tool. It has a lot of ability. We're doing LiDAR scans so that we can do some monitoring and some evaluation of all those kinds of things. But the technology, it's not there yet for what we're asking it to do. Um, And so we have an entire uh, unmanned aircraft uh, group that's responsible for. I would encourage you to reach out with them um, and or if you need, I can can hook you up with that and Tina could too, I suppose. Um, But we have a lot of opportunity in front of us with technology in general. Mm -hmm. And I feel like as a natural resource agency, We might have some really brilliant minds, but we need that outside perspective to come in and solve that problem for us. Because I think it's, again, it's a force multiplier, right? When we have more diverse opinions, whether it's cultural or ethnicities and or just skill sets and and academic approvals there, that brings the better answer to the table than the we're gonna use the same approach we did 50 years ago to fight a problem that's 50 years ahead of us, right? And that's where I'm saying from the aerospace side, that's where I can see the, the room for improvement in particular.
3: If um, um, I could just yeah. add to that, um, yeah. I would say that from the material science kind of like side, uh, there's like uh, this untapped potential, like nature has mastered uh, so many engineered materials and like functions. Like uh, if you're looking at how to have a self deployable uh, structure that has torsion, like wood has done that. Like I mean, wood cells will twist as a function of moisture, like with temperature. In the- so if we can really look back and... Uh, Uh, look at that as a source of inspiration as we're designing new materials and stuff like that. I think it's really cool what we could come up with, like to actually address some of those needs.
2: Mm
3: -hmm. I just wanted to
2: really briefly add that um, we depend so much on this technology that, you know, aerospace, remote sensing, things that you would never think of. We have just recently remapped, we're able to remap the hydrology. That's all the stream systems in the forest because we needed to match on-the-ground geodesic projection, mm-hmm. which we didn't have, to the good quality remote sensing. Because you can have the best quality one centimeter LiDAR, but if you don't have the geodesic to spread it upon, you're not going to deal with it. And now we're opening our eyes to that. The stream densities that we thought we had are higher, and this is really a good tool to help us with flash floods, flooding in urban areas if we don't understand how the watershed moves. And the other thing that we're working on, testing on, is the technology from um, uh, GEDI, the acronym, and all these others, is that a lot of the time we make decisions and we try to understand urban forests. How much heat can they uh, uh, buffer? How much water can they buffer in cities? But the images of a canopy don't tell us the truth of what's underground and now getting technology that can separate because you can have tree canopies that underneath have cement and so this is not a true urban forest and so understanding those subtleties and improving our way to understanding those subtleties from technology that's remote is really going to help us manage better our forest resources especially in urban areas.
1: Thank you. Well, the engineering question, we're going to need some sidebar time for that because there is so much that we could be doing better with engineering, whether it's road design, access egress, all those parts and pieces, not only just the technology, but the actual physical structure on the ground. In terms of what are we doing to address the wildfire crisis strategy, we're increasing our scale and scale on an epic level, right? So we went from two million acres of prescribed fire, now we're sitting at four million acres of prescribed fire. That's just with the Forest Service itself. We're now realizing that we can't operate in a vacuum or a bubble. We have to work with our state partners, our tribal partners. Um, we're, we're expanding across all of our federal boundaries as well, trying to do more collaborative, strategic placement of our treatments, if you will. So we're trying to take care of the problem before it, it presents itself. We're anticipating things like species shift to more dry or dry tolerant species and the reality that fire is going to be in places it traditionally was not. Um, We're trying to reduce or minimize the impacts or the effects of hazardous fuel loadings themselves because we were really good with Smoky Bear and putting fires out. The problem is is that didn't we took basically the role of Mother Nature out of the system. She was a really good house cleaner. She would clean the house up all the time and she kept telling us the kids clean up your junk, clean up your junk. Well now she's done telling us to clean up our junk. She's just throwing it all out. Right? So we're trying to help undo that process, if you will, by getting ahead, cleaning up our woods, trying to reduce those fuel loadings, provide for habitat and species shifts that we're seeing here. That's what the rest of my colleagues are involved with. And so that combined effort, if you will, between all lands and all hands and all perspectives, that's where we're really focusing and shifting gears. That's what I've seen change in my career. We were very siloed, very... Uh, monocentric mindset and, and myopic in our focus, and now we're shifting gears to this whole new world of all the other parts and pieces that are connected to it and, and attempting to work within that framework to resolve the problem itself so we can anticipate better, we can be more strategic about where we're investment our, our investments are, and we're anticipating those changes that will then result in more wildfire habits. So that's that's from the Forest Service or the land, uh, National Land Management standpoint. From the rest of the standpoint, we hear things like uh, insurance companies making changes. We hear things like other parts and pieces being addressed and or modified for housing structures and or technologies and and different kinds of boards and different kind of house components to protect the people when the wildfire does show up.
4: I'm Tina Terrell. I'm the Senior Executive for National Recruitment for the Forest Service. I'm assuming you're from an engineering company? Thank you. The reason I say that, for all of you who are sitting here who are dealing with engineering, this area is a focus for you. Mm-hmm. Reason I say that is what John stated. Forest Service, we are in a transition. And the transition is a lot what John stated, so thank you, John. We need your assistance if you're in the engineering field for us to bring the technology that you have and for us as society to address wildfires. So that's the reason why I have been pushing that we come to this conference and we stay at this conference. Because one, you had that information that can help us address something that has just devastated the West. But who remembers uh, Hawaii had a big fire?
0: Mm-hmm.
4: First of all, fire is everywhere. Thank you for talking, to, it is everywhere. I, I've been with the Forest Service for 40 years. Worked in California, was just there two weeks last week. If you think it's not going to happen where you are, mm-mm. So I'm just bringing up. This is why the agency, and I am here for the agency, to say, we need your help. Because one, as Jen just stated, what we used to do with aircraft? Oh, no. Second, many parts of the United States of America no longer have a fire season. It's year round. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is year round. And I can say that because I have worked in those places year round. I used to be a force supervisor in Southern California on Christmas Day. There was a fire at the bottom of the mountain, and then there was snow at the top was Southern California. Four years ago, there was a fire on New Year's Eve in Denver, Colorado. So I say that because we need assistance Last thing I'll say, what we're doing right now is we're trying to identify how can we get companies and universities, thank you for saying that, to help us address two things that this panel talked about. Nature's impacting us, that's the science side. Humans are impacting us, that's the social science side. That is what we need some assistance on, is how one, we put that message out to all of those who say, oh no, fires, no, no, no. Okay, we live in an environment of not if, but when. So that's the social side. Of course, the science side was mentioned. We need that, too. So with the engineering or the science, the agency is saying we need additional assistance, as well as it can't just be us. So thank you for that question, because that led into why we are here and will continue to be here to talk about climate change and the impacts of wildfires for what we do with your land, our land. Thanks.
0: Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, I have gotten my one-minute warning and my you-need-to-stop-talking warning. So if you have any further questions, we will vacate the room. And we will be available right outside the door if you You have anything else you'd like to talk about. Thank you so much for coming.